making the job summit work for workers, bosses bumper bonuses, a COVID update, and the good news is about sand. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and joining me from the Harbour City is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, and recent guest on the Marcus Paul Show, Van Badham. How are you, my darling? Hello, beautiful man. I am. Uh, I'm always happy to be with my mum, but I'm always sad to be away from you. Yes, I'm sad that we're apart as well, but we will see each other in just a couple of days. Best news. Ever. I will be coming up for a flying visit to Sydney. Looking forward three to days, it. Three days, three days of heaven. So it'll be great. And pretty soon I'm going to be at the Byron Bay Writers Festival. I'm doing three sessions there at the end of August. And I'd just like to publicly announce a petition that Ben comes with me. <laughs> well, we will see what the future holds. Hopefully, I've never been to Byron Bay. I hear it is both lovely and terrible all rolled into one. Yeah, well, like most things, darling, like most things, if you mix heaven with hell, you get planet Earth. Speaking of mixing heaven and hell, our Labor Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has announced this week that there will be a Jobs and Skills Summit to take place on the 1st and 2nd of September. This, of course, was a much vaunted uh, policy position during the election campaign and was really promoted as an opportunity to try and bring together business, unions, employers, employees, and reset the Australian economy and the Australian economic framework. Uh, And of course, as you say, you mix heaven and hell and maybe we'll get a bit better planet Earth. So Van, 100 invitees from business and unions, they'll be selected organisations, uh, nobody knows the invite list as yet. Oh, isn't that going to be a list to be on? That's almost as competitive as the National Gallery Victoria annual party, by the way, which I would love to be invited to just in case anyone in charge of that guest list is listening to the show. Um, yes, it's been very interesting to hear that there are some companies that insist that they're going, but it's not necessarily known if they've actually been invited. Yes, well, Australia's uh, most, uh, I think, almost loathed company, certainly at the moment, Qantas, has come out and said that they're going uh, to the summit. This is. The- are you talking about Qantas that unlawfully sacked two thousand ground crew workers? Yes, I am. Qantas, where every flight I've caught in the past two months has been late. Every single, every single flight. Them. That's the one. So they. You know, people. People have started calling it flying the queue. Oh dear. And not in a good way. No. Not in a good way. It just breaks my heart. Do you know one of the earliest columns I wrote for The Guardian was called Qantas, A Love Story? (laughs) And it was about my relationship with this airline and the fact that Qantas staff had been so kind to me, like when my father was dying, helping me reschedule flights, 
you know, broke up with my boyfriend at the airport when I was in my 20s, tearfully got onto the plane, Qantas stuff gave me a blanket, like just all of these beautiful moments about the discretion that Qantas used to give to its staff to make sure you just had a superior flying experience. And because, you know, like I've worked internationally, I always used to insist on flying Qantas. I'm a business customer. I work interstate all the time, always insist if, if it's not Qantas, I'm not going. And it is a nightmare now and it just breaks my heart. And it really boils down to, I think, Michael Kane from the Transport Workers Union um, and many of the other unions as well that are in uh, the airline industry have pointed out that Qantas unlawfully sacked 2,000 people. It was told this would have dire consequences. It sacked a bunch of people uh, from uh, check-in desks and in security uh, and in lounges, they were told it would have dire consequences for uh, customer service. You know, they've outsourced maintenance as much as possible. They were told it would have consequences for the way ground crews operated. You know, they've treated the pilots appallingly during the pandemic, uh, including including having staff who were dying of cancer have their sick leave cancelled, despite Qantas getting huge money during the pandemic, both in terms of bailout cash. What, you mean $2 billion? Well, also JobKeeper. $2 billion? Yeah, JobKeeper and bailout cash there. Like it's it's really all very foreseeable, all very preventable. Uh, And for Qantas to come out ahead of the Prime Minister of Australia, who has said that decisions haven't been made yet about who will be attending, and, and just announce that they're going to the summit, is just so typical of the arrogance of the current Qantas management. You know, the staff still try their very best. We know they're trying hard to to meet everyone's needs, but the management and the executive level and really the board have to take some responsibility for this. Yeah, the board do. The board really do have to take responsibility for this because this is appalling. And knowing what certain members of the board have been up to, not related to the core business of Qantas and what they seem to be prioritising at the moment, and if you're listening, you know who you are, like this is just absolutely appalling. Senator Tony Sheldon, who's, of course, one of my many favourite senators, (laughs) he tweeted about Qantas today, and I'm going to read it to you. Qantas's presence at the job summit can be as a case study of how the current system has allowed some employers to rip off workers and customers. There is no better case for why we need urgent reform than what Joyce has done to Qantas. This is, of course, CEO Alan Joyce, who paid how much for his house, Ben? Uh, I think it was almost $20 million recently he, he paid for a new a new mansion. Uh, and look, we'll, we'll talk about uh, CEO pay in this episode because some startling, startling numbers have come out today. But, you know, I want to I talk about the, the summit, not just, Can I just Qantas. Just while we're on Qantas, I have another quote that I found today that's relevant to the discussion, and it actually comes from Qantas's operating strategy, which is a document online yeah. that guides their purpose and their corporate governance. And if you asked a, a person, you know, what do you think Qantas's purpose is, you'd probably be so naive uh, to suggest that Qantas was in transport, you know, or Qantas's job was to- or At least customer you know, service or something. <laughs> continental landmass to get people 
we could even call them passengers from one part of the country to the mm-hmm. other. I mean, that's literally why Qantas was brought into existence. That's not the purpose of Qantas. The purpose is, and I quote, to achieve top quartile total shareholder returns relative to the ASX, that's the Australian Stock Market 100, richest 100 companies, and global airline peers. That's the first line in their strategy document. And it really shows, doesn't it? And, and you know, I want to bring this back to the summit because what that shows is why the current Qantas management probably shouldn't be invited to the summit because yeah it probably shouldn't because the 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 point of the summit right and, and Albanese and Jim Chalmers and Katie Gallagher and uh, and others in the government have made the point that the point of the summit is to focus on keeping unemployment low boosting productivity and raising incomes it's to deliver secure well-paid jobs and strong sustainable wages growth it's to expand employment opportunities for all Australians, including the disadvantaged, uh, to address skill shortages and getting our skills mix right over the long term, uh, to improve migration settings to support higher productivity and wages, and ensuring women have equal, rep- equal opportunities and equal pay. Now, Qantas's first point of its reason for existence, quite frankly, doesn't touch on any of those issues. Now, you would think that the purpose of Qantas could be part of that, right? It could actually do some of those things. Uh, You know, there's issues in there about migration. That involves travel. There's issues in there about employment. Certainly, a company the size of Qantas has to hire thousands and thousands of people. We know that they've unlawfully sacked 2,000 people, so they clearly have the capacity. But, you know, Qantas isn't the only company who's come out and said they want to attend this thing, right? Like there's obviously it's a hot ticket. Woolworths, who employs tens of thousands of people around the country, and then, of course, through their supply chains as well, has said they want to go along. And you can imagine Coles likewise would want to be there too. But also Uber have said they want to attend. Now, this is a company that- That's a morally complex uh, engagement, Ben, Uber. Well, not exactly one of my favourite companies. I believe we've said on this show before, friends, don't let friends use Uber. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Because recently the masthead that you write for, The Guardian, has exposed some incredibly dodgy conduct by Uber in other jurisdictions around the world, Uh, the way they treat the drivers, the way they've given media companies shares in the company in order to uh, curry favour and get favourable coverage, uh, the way they've influenced politicians in order to change laws to make their what was once an illegal taxi service a legal taxi service. Uh, and of course, we know that uh, you know union movement and others still have issues with Uber. And in fact, the word Uberization has become part of the vernacular when we talk about job insecurity. So it's it's interesting that, that Uber would go along. Now, you would think that they want to be there to kind of protect their business model, right? The second dot point that I read out, delivering secure, well-paid jobs and strong, sustainable wages growth uh, doesn't seem to mesh with the Uber model or Uberization as is now commonly understood, does it? Uh, no, no, because it's this whole it, – it, it is an extraordinary business model in which they own nothing, 
they outsource literally everything apart from profit. Everything is outsourced apart from their capacity to make money. And again and again, Uber have been exposed for industrial tactics. Appalling would probably be the most complimentary word you could use to describe them. And again, a shout out to the Greens, who of course praised the Uber model in Parliament um, and have shown support for this form of casualisation, which of course we've now watched extend to um, various forms of labour hire, obviously aged care, disability care, very few guardrails and protections, where you have like this sort of monstrous, uh, this monstrous corporate model that charges into areas before legislatures have caught up with bringing them and I think, under control. And I think that's really one of the key things about this summit, right, is obviously unions are going to be invited to, to go along. Sally McManus, the leader of the Australian trade union movement, um, has talked about some of the issues that that she wants dealt with. And obviously she says that uh, we need, and I quote, solutions to our broken bargaining system and for workers to have a fair share of the productivity and profits that they're creating. And it's blatantly obvious that there are huge problems in the system. And there's a couple of case studies I want to talk about around how bargaining is failing despite record profits, despite high CEO pay. We're seeing more insecurity, more Uberization. You mentioned aged care and the NDIS as two areas where that is just taking root. I mean, this summit is really, in a way, it's almost last chance saloon, right? Like if we can't get in front of the Uberization of the workforce now. If we can't get in front of it, we'll go under the wheels of it. Yeah. And I mean, it's such a, it's a monster, it is a monstrous precedent. And I keep using that term. And I certainly recommend everybody read the reporting that the Guardian has been doing about their tactics you know, like the, some of the most aggressively awful corporate tactics you have ever seen. And it and it really does prey on some really vulnerable people. I know the Victorian government did a report on job insecurity um, and particularly uh, the platform economy, right? That's what they were calling it, their report. And it found that vulnerable cohorts of workers were more likely to be engaged in Uberized employment. So if you were a new migrant, you're more likely. If you're a young person, you're more likely. Uh, if you uh, had a disability, uh, if you were uh, a single woman with an unstable income, you're, these were all cohorts of people that were seemingly disproportionately represented in Uberized work. Uh, and you know this is why I think Albo and the Labor Party's approach or the Labor government's approach to this uh, summit to involve the social services minister, Amanda Rishworth, the minister for women, Katie Gallagher, um, the minister for skills and training, Brendan O'Connor, of course, Jim Chalmers, I think is actually a really good one because it, it recognizes the intersectional nature of employment and work and how our position in life actually can determine what job opportunities are available to us that we can actually access. Uh, it's almost like you're saying that, you know, that perhaps the structure of all hitherto existing society is based on, you know, the 
social implications of productive relations and productive relations represent, you know, what we're born into or what we enter involuntarily in terms of oppression. I mean, has anybody had that idea before? Has there ever been a a body of, say, philosophical inquiry that analysed for example, the relationship of labour to capital. I mean, that could be really useful. I think I'd be, read that book. I th- yeah, I think, uh, you know, particularly if uh, anyone named Carl uh, wanted to write a book like that, I'm sure we'd, we'd find it very interesting. But Especially be, uh, if he's got a friend called Fred. <laughs> uh, you know, look, it, it is very interesting. And it's also interesting, Van, I do want to touch on before we get into a couple of case studies about how broken our bargaining system is, and I couldn't believe this when I was talking to the talking to people about the, the two case studies, how broken just bargaining, just put it, you know, before we get into the Uberization and uh, using new technology to rip people off, we, just the simple process of sitting down across the table from a person to bargain is so broken. But before we touch on that, I do want to touch on how chaotic. A liberal response to the summit has been. Oh no, this is some of your best comic writing, I've got to say, and you didn't even write the quotes yourself. Well, I mean, Su- Susan Lay, who is of course acting Liberal Party leader, uh, acting opposition leader, because Peter Dutton is actually on holiday, the very thing the Liberal Party was trying to criticise Albo for as he worked uh, on our behalf in, in a range of international forums recently. Uh, Peter Dutton has been on holiday in the United States attending uh, some fairly, uh, what I would call unsavory, I'm sure conservatives find them quite interesting, but fairly unsavory um, uh, conferences. But nonetheless, Susan Lay has called it a talk fest and said it will only be a boon for the suppliers of small stationery and whiteboards. Um, This was interesting that she should do this because at this, almost at the same time, it would seem, Angus Taylor, who of course is the shadow treasurer, was busy demanding an invite to the said talk fest. So I'm not sure if uh, the right faction and the far right faction quite know uh, what they're doing, uh, whether they want to come to the summit or not. I note that historically, uh, the Liberals weren't invited to Hawke's summit, uh, although Malcolm Fraser, who Hawke beat, quite famously beat in 1983, uh, was quite uh, praise, full of praise for Hawke for having the summit, uh, even though uh, he knew at the time the Liberals weren't going to be invited. So it's interesting to see how far the Liberal Party has fallen. Not only are they unable to embrace the idea that working people, governments, uh, unions, employers should sit down and discuss the issues that face us as a nation, uh, they're also unable to decide whether or not they want to be present when that happens. Uh, so far, they've fallen from the the place that they were at, even under poor old Malcolm Fraser. So you know, we'll see. It remains to be seen. Maybe maybe Peter Dutton will get an invite and then reject it. Uh, that's a little interesting piece of political theatre that may yet play out between now and September first. I've got to say, it has been particularly interesting to watch in the wake of the election the absolute you know lost in the desert uh behavior of the liberals so susan lay says it's only going to sell whiteboards interesting that she relates jobs to whiteboards given the fact that 
infamously the former coalition minister for theoretically employment, I believe, um, Michaela Cash, so famously hid behind a whiteboard to avoid she, media scrutiny. She is still the shadow minister. Wow. Michaela Cash is my understanding. I, I mean, listeners, jump in and correct me if I get that wrong, but my understanding is Michaela Cash retained that portfolio in the new Oh, government. wow. I mean, that position. is wow. That is amazing. I mean, it says a lot about depth of talent, um, you know, a depth of talent that you're not exactly going to drown in, are you? Let's, but Susan Lay, the the minister for, I was a punk when I was at university, um, which was one of the most chilling interviews I've ever read, uh, at least in a sociological sense. Yeah. Dutton, where is he? I mean, he's somewhere. Angus Taylor, not speaking to Susan Lay, clearly. Like it's just a, it's a circus. And in terms of looking at the problems Australia has around jobs, employment, opportunity, the relationship with that to welfare, looking at issues that affect women, not only things like the gender pay gap, but workforce participation. Do we have like flexible work conditions for women who find themselves overwhelmingly in caring roles? All of these things, it just makes you realise that the Susan Lay, Angus Taylor, Peter Dutton clown show, like what were they doing when they were in government? Like literally what were they doing apart from hiding behind whiteboards? Racking up trillions of dollars worth of debt apparently. but And giving money to Qantas, no questions asked, just spend the money. Well, and and let's talk about uh, strength in depth because – Part of the summit is to look at skills and the need for a skilled workforce. And I want to make this point right off the bat, and I and I know you share my view on this too, Van, but there's no such thing as unskilled labour. There, there are jobs that are called unskilled labour, which I can tell you without doubt, me with my master's degrees and my certificates and whatnot would not be able to do. They are Every job requires some form of skill. Some of it you learn on the job. Some of it you learn in a classroom ahead of time. But business is crying out for skilled labor and saying there's a shortage of labor, shortage of skilled workers. And and every day we're bombarded by the news that there's a shortage of workers, shortage of workers, which makes the two case studies that I want to mention so egregious because you've got in the, in the form of these companies, Svitzer, which is a tugboat company, uh, the tugboat company where the the workers on the tugboat saved saved a crew stranded at sea in the recent storms off Sydney, and Tuft Masters that make carpeting and flooring sold out of carpet court. Now both of these are skilled skilled occupations. These are these are things that certainly I couldn't do, and Van. No offense to you, but I don't think you could do them either. Not not really, not really in my skill set at all. No. You know, and as somebody who is working in what is supposedly unskilled labor until they were 37 years old, I was still waiting tables when I was 37, you know, which is supposed to be one of these expendable jobs in the economy. The majority of people could not do it. I just want to put that on the record. If you seriously think that like it's just it's a job that not everybody can physically do. It's a job that not everybody psychologically could do. And I just, yeah, I just always find that discussion so insulting to the people who work those jobs and develop skills in them and need to, and 
are not rewarded with the pay that they deserve overwhelmingly in terms of what they're obliged to do. And the interesting thing here is that so Toughmasters um, has uh, a workforce that uh, is often uh, migrant or first-generation Australian and is represented by the CFMU Manufacturing Division, uh, which represents manufacturing workers often in uh, things like flooring uh, and woodworking and carpet making and textiles. And Toughmasters is trying to cancel their workplace agreement. Now, this would mean that workers who are already only earning about $25 an hour would essentially go down to the minimum wage. They've already had a three-year pay freeze. Those workers in real terms have gone backwards. They they have already gone backwards. Toughmasters wants to cancel the agreement primarily, and, and, and you would think in an environment where every employer is screaming out for more workers and we need more skilled workers, they primarily want to get rid of the redundancy provisions in the agreement and reduce them to the bare minimum legal requirement. Now, the union has quite clearly said they want to do this because they want to move everybody onto casual employment. They want to make the workforce redundant and they want to basically have a Uberized workforce. It is beyond the comprehension of most people. Certainly when I heard that, I go, on one hand, the business lobby screams, we've got a skill shortage, we're struggling to get workers. Yet on the other hand, here's a company, pretty decent-sized company in Australian terms, trying to make their workforce more insecure and cheaper to get rid of and cheaper to pay. So there's been protests outside carpet core stores around Australia, Sally McManus, the leader of the trade union movement. And of course, you know, Anyone who's listening to this, you should be joining your union. If you haven't already, I'm going to say join your union. I'm going to give you the link, australianunions.org.au slash wow. And Van, you'll be pleased to know. We got an email today from a person named Steve who let me know that uh, he was interested in where we got some facts from, but he let me know that after six months of having forgotten to join his union, forgotten to join his union, our constant reminding meant that he joined his union this week. So. Congratulations, Steve. Steve gets a gold star. And if you want to get a gold star like Steve, you know what you need to do? Join your union. Yes. That is the correct answer. And the Toughmasters workers have joined their union and they're standing strong and that's why, you know, I'm raising them as a case study. But they're not the only ones. So you've got at that end, you've got Toughmasters. At the other end, I spoke this week, Van, with Paul Garrett, who's the MUA Sydney Deputy Branch Secretary, about Svitzer, about those tugboats. And when you think of tugboats, like I sometimes think of like cartoons and like sort of kids' toys and, you know, the thing, you see the footage sometimes of a tugboat and it all seems very kind of like it must be, must be like kind of all getting along and, you know, working hard together type thing. Svitzer is owned by a massive conglomerate company, um, which I did, did you know about this? I didn't know about this until until I was talking to them. Yeah, let's talk about Maersk. Maersk is one of the richest and most powerful companies in the world, uh, founded by Maersk McKinney Muller, 
Uh, it's a Danish shipping company. You will see the name Maersk on everything from aerospace to rail shipping. Like they are everywhere. I think they're actually what the 622nd biggest company in the world, which given the fact there are billions of us is, is kind of a big deal. And the idea that a com- they made, didn't they make $22 billion last year? That was the profit. So when I was talking to Paul, th- th- this is the information that's coming through, right, is that Maersk made a $22 billion profit during COVID while there's a supply chain crisis around the world. Like they were not suffering. We were all paying more for everything. Inflation's making us all pay more. Well, I think we found it's not wages driving up inflation. Maersk's twenty-two billion dollar profit is definitely part of that part of that equation. Twenty-two billion dollars. But let's screw our workforce. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, this is the thing. So they the Paul was saying that the the workers at Switzer uh, were negotiating their EBA, they'd almost resolved it, and then COVID hit, right? And and basically what's happened is Maersk has taken this opportunity through Switzer to, to basically be opportunistic. So they came back at the end of 2020 with 30 new claims, which were going to strip the paying conditions out of the EBA. Uh, they put it out for a vote in November 2021, and again, workers standing together at Switzer stood up against this massive multinational conglomerate and said, no, 92% of the employees said, no, we're not going to vote to have our conditions stripped away. So what did Switzer do, Van? Did they throw a massive tantrum, Van? Did um, they absolutely shred any corporate like like any corporate credibility they had. Yeah. Is that what they did? Did Ab- they do that? Did they do that, Ben? They absolutely did. They absolutely did. Oh, my did. God, amazing. So, oh, I'm so glad that we're just replaying the ongoing CUB dispute and the streets dispute. And uh, what happened in the CUB and streets disputes, Ben? I seem to recall something happened. What happened? The workers won. They stood up. Yeah, they won because they stood their ground. They were union members. They took action. And they won. And so good luck, Spitzer. Good on you. Well, Spitzer's basically trying to do exactly what Tough Masters is trying to do, and that is to cancel the collective agreement. These, uh, you know, and when I say the collective agreement, I think it's important people realise, Van, that collective agreements are built up over time. They're a negotiation process that happens over many, many years. And sometimes you've got to give a little to get a little, but what these negotiating tactics of threatening to terminate the agreement is basically saying, we're going to take a lot or you're going to give us what we want. And in the case of the the Switzer workers, they would have pay cuts of between 30 and 55%, 30 to 55% pay cuts if the agreement is terminated. Now, there's a hearing on the on that particular case between the 8th and the 12th of August. Links to these, uh, the, to petitions to support these workers are available on our Facebook page. Please do check them out. They're on Megaphone, which is, of course, a uh, wholly worker-owned platform. None of your data is sold, unlike some other platforms. Um, these are real petitions designed to help these workers. I, I, you know, we have, to, we have to address this. The summit has to fix this problem. Because for every streets and CUB, there's a small company uh, doing this to a smaller group of workers somewhere. Uh, 
And the commentary around this, you know, Jim Chalmers has said that employers terminating agreements is a problem in our bargaining system and has to be fixed. It's so good to hear a government actually say that this nuclear option, which was only ever designed really to be about terminating the agreement that was just totally out of date, wasn't relevant anymore, the company had totally changed what it does, something like that, now being used as a negotiating tactic is just inappropriate. Yeah, absolutely inappropriate. It's not like it just it just absolutely beggars belief with me because we've been through this before in this country. Like we've given some examples and this sort of aggressive American style industrial warfare ends up costing the company money. Like I'm always like, who is running this strategy for you? You're gonna you're gonna try and cancel the collective agreement just to bully the the workers around. The workers are gonna go to the union, the union's gonna back them in, all of the other unions are gonna back them in. You, you know, like enormous negative community sentiment will be fermented and you'll probably lose. Like what do you get out of this apart from you know, reputational damage and like and industrial risk. Like, well, I, what are they doing? I think it comes down to Van that point you made earlier about Qantas's first dot point of its purpose. You know that they're so fixated on that short-term profit motive that they're actually burning social license to operate. They're burning brand value. You know. And and it's always interesting to me that companies will buy other companies and record huge levels of goodwill on their balance sheet. You know, they'll pay many multiples the the market value for a company because of the so-called goodwill that comes with the brand and comes with the company's standing in the community and with its customer base. But because companies, and maybe it's because of this, the companies can't record their own built-up brand equity over time doesn't feature on their balance sheet. It, you know, it's supposedly captured in their sales, right? You, you increase your sales because your brand equity is strong. There's no focus on it. So Qantas will spend a million dollars on an ad with Kylie Minogue um, and, and at the same time, it will spend a million dollars on on legal fees to unlawfully sack workers you know, not even thinking about the, the the brand repercussions, the long-term issues that's going to have for the for the company. And Svitzer and its parent company, Maersk, if you if you look up Maersk on Wikipedia, you will find incident after incident where it has been fined, where it has had to um, it has been found to have acted unlawfully, where it's had to offload companies because of its behavior. Uh, like it has breached international sanctions in some cases. Like these are companies that are, are totally motivated by profit uh, above and beyond all else. I, for me, it's just, I mean, I always look at profit is the key performance indicator that you're meeting your purpose. Like it's an, it's an indicator that the reason why your organisation or company exists is being fulfilled. People are using that service and willing to pay for it. And and I just, this whole, oh, yeah, well, it's like our number one priority is just to make money. Like there are lots of failed entrepreneurs who <laughs> had that attitude. It's interesting because just going through the social media, I know we keep talking about Qantas, but 
you and I are in this situation at the moment where we're dependent on on the reliability and the availability and the affordability of interstate transport because my mother is terribly ill. I have responsibilities to her. We have responsibilities to one another. We are trying to make this work, you know, and like- Like many tens of thousands of Australians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like our situation is not uncommon and it's like it's it's part of how we are running our lives and our family and meeting our commitments and trying to do our jobs at the moment is we depend on that reliability. This is literally why Qantas was created as a company. This is why the government used to own it. And I've, there is no more compelling argument for the renationalisation of Qantas than the current corporate behaviour of Qantas because to them it's it's just about money. And seriously, get on Twitter. Just do it so you don't even need to have a Twitter account or maybe you do, but you have to just do a Twitter search of the word Qantas and you will just get pages of people being outraged about luggage going missing, going missing for weeks, flight delays, you know, these totally, mm. totally smashed systems because they, let's just repeat this one more time, unlawfully sacked more than 1,700 people, unlawfully, they have been found to have done it unlawfully. They don't have the staff to meet the demands on their services. I'm looking at a photo right now of our friend Sally Rugg, who's one of the hosts of the On The Job podcast, which obviously we recommend you read. And Sally has, you know, like obviously obligations to travel interstate as well. And I'm looking at this photo of her. She's wearing her coronavirus mask and she's standing in front of Qantas Baggage Services and the tweet reads, and you'll never believe what happened next. And literally everybody is, we know what that image means. Yeah. And because it's, it's just, it's a disaster. It is so enraging that this is happening. Well, it's, it's also, it's also, I think, you know, an issue you've sort of touched on there is that there are productivity issues around this, right? A country our size relies on air travel. The Melbourne Sydney air route, I think, is the third or some, somewhere between the third and the first busiest air route in the world. It is fundamental to our economic growth that our airline system works well. All the arguments about giving Qantas money during the pandemic that Qantas made were about how important it was to keep our skies competitive and we couldn't have just one airline, we had to have multiple airlines and we needed government support to make sure that you know the productivity benefit. Stephen Kukoulis uh, who's on Twitter as well. You can find him at, at the kook, uh, tweeted that he got stuck in Adelaide for two extra days. I think it was something like two extra days because they just kept canceling flights and he, and, and his baggage went missing. The productivity cost of the profitable, uh, focus from Alan Joyce is huge, you know, and, and I think this next thing I want to talk about is how, Really, corporate CEOs and executives have been making out like bandits, absolute bandits during the last 12 months. Because, Van, you, you make the point, right, that how is it that companies who are not meeting a purpose are either profitable or paying out huge salaries? Uh, because in the case of Qantas, they were bailed out by billions of dollars of taxpayers' money with no expectation of return? Absolutely. And it's also that... Markets are fundamentally 
not logical. They're, they're not rational. They, they act in irrational ways. And if you, if you ever want a really good example of this, that's easy to consume and enjoyable to consume, um, watch We Crashed, which is about the story of WeWork. Cause that is a classic example of how you burn $4 billion, uh, on just, you know, capitalism gone mad. But reports have come out today about CEO salaries. And, and there's a couple that really stand out. And, and the first is that the founders of Afterpay, which, you know, you and I have talked about before, we talked about it years ago, sort of when it got started. And, and I was just entirely skeptical going, this is, this is effectively just uh, loading people up with a fee to buy the thing they want to buy anyway. And of course, Afterpay was bought out by the US company Block, which is owned by Jack Dorsey, who of course created Twitter. And it was the largest corporate merger, in inverted commas, in Australian history. It was a buyout. It was a US company buying an Australian company. And it was bought for billions of dollars, despite the fact that Afterpay has never recorded a profit, right? And it's come out today because the two founders uh, have received $246 million in their real compensation, their real pay, uh, after having sold this company. Van, can you, can, you know, they got paid $246 million. You'd think they turned a profit, right? Like there must have been a huge afterpay profit. Yeah. Was there though? Was there? <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, their losses increased. So they still have never, the afterpay business has not turned a profit. The losses increased by 336%. And during the reporting period, afterpay lost $345.5 million. The company's losing money. It's paid the founders $246 million. So most of the increased loss is actually giving the founders this huge amount of money. And uh, it's it's foul and it's a corrupt culture. And I just want people to put aside that this has like that this has anything to do with like entrepreneurialism or capitalism or like any any sort of ideals associated with those terms. Like it's just grifting. Well, it, and they're not the only You know, like it's not it's not that you know, capitalism depends on this mythology in a democracy. Of course, let's remember that capitalism predates modern yeah, democracy. But then I wanna oh. I wanna I wanna really focus on these CEO things because these make the point, I think, really clearly. Because CSL, which is used to be called the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, it, it was a Commonwealth owned company. The CEO of CSL got paid $59 million. Uh, and you know, that's not, as you say, it's not because of some kind of capitalist entrepreneurialism. CSL was handed billions of dollars during the pandemic. And guess what he got to do? What did he get to do? He got to convert some of his stock options at zero dollars. So he yes. got, yeah, he got thousands of shares that cost him nothing. And then, he, of course, he was allowed to sell them, which gave him millions of dollars. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely sickening. And it's so, it's so interesting when you look at like what are just raw examples of labour exploitation in this country. And it's things like wage theft. We've seen numerous businesses and some really big brands 
exposed from perpetrating wage theft in this country. Yeah. And there's always an, ex- an excuse Oh, the payroll system is so complicated or, oh, we outsource that to our franchisees. We're not responsible for that. Like there's always some kind of excuse. And yet, Ben, and yet executive remuneration, they never argue that it's complicated or they can't do it or they've <laughs> yet, made a mistake. The, the, the it's irony. like, oh, well, I'm going to get all of these shares for literally nothing and get this massive payout and the business is actually losing money but I'm going to get a quarter of a billion dollars. Like... And yet around the same corporate tables where people are going, ah, yes, yes, Simon, James and Andrew, because everybody seems to be called Simon, James or Andrew. There's literally a guy named Andrew I want to talk about in a second, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Simon, James or Andrew, uh, yes, yes, you know, wonderful management of the company, you know, we're really – you know, pursuing our purpose of just making money, even though we're not actually making money. And, you know, it is, you know, in service of that goal of making more money, it is totally awesome that you came up with a completely dodgy labor exploitation model, tried to cancel some awards, uh, allowed franchisees to pay employees of our company $10 an hour, you know, this happened, this abuse, that abuse, you know, unpaid over to all of these things. Like, but you're doing all of those things to the workforce, yet still not making money. But we are going to pay you millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars because you as a human have this arbitrary value despite your constant pattern of failing upwards that we are going to reward you for as opposed to those people who actually do the work. This, ladies and gentlemen, is literally how people started inventing things like communism. Like this, it is this (laughs) paradigm that had people go, you know, maybe we should seize the means of production. Well, you know, man, I can totally understand why, right? Because the reports that have come out today are absolutely damning. The CEO pay of the ASX, the top companies on the ASX, the wealthiest companies, I should say, is a hundred times average adult earnings. Now, last year it was 70 times, and the year before that, during the pandemic, it was 65 times. So it's gone up a huge amount. It's more than it's it's more than 30% over a year CEO wages have gone up by. And that Andrew that I mentioned before, it's a guy named Andrew Barkler from a company called IDP Education, and he was paid $9.2 million. Uh, and Van, can you guess uh, how much JobKeeper uh, the IDP Education received? $9.2 million? No, not quite. $10.5 million. All oh, right. Million. So he got paid nine point two. They got 10.5. Let's do a bit of mathematics. That means uh, only $1.3 million went to the business to keep other people's jobs alive, which is the whole point of JobKeeper, but he took over $9 million. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Do you know what that is? That is disgusting. That is literally grab a pitchfork, let's set some hay bales on fire kind of territory. Well, it's pretty bad because- you know, and at the same time, I want to be really clear. Like we talked about Afterpay and the fact that it's never turned a profit. CSL is obviously very profitable, partly because it gets government funding. A number of the companies that pay huge, huge salaries, BHP, Fortescue, some of these companies pay 10 million plus. Um, they are quite profitable. In fact, profits have grown uh at more than double the rate of wages over the last 20 years. And really what these CEOs are doing is cashing in, uh, in many cases, at the very, well, what seems to be at the moment, the very top of the kind of profit curve where they've 
pushed down wages. They've done all those things you just talked about to the point where actually now the pendulum is going to swing the other way. We're going to have a summit. We're going to talk about why these things are not okay. We're going to adjust the laws. We're going to change the regulation. We're going to, we're going to basically limit their capacity to gobble up all the productivity. And that's the other thing too. And Sally McManus made this point. Um, I'm referring to Sally a lot because the ACT has been very active on these issues lately. And because she's awesome. Yeah. Yep. Well, productivity has increased by 2.8%. That's almost triple the average over the last decade, which was around 1%. So wages should have been going up because we've been more productive. Workers are doing our bit, but these CEOs really have gobbled it all up. Their wages have gone grown by 30% in the last year, whereas the real wages of everyday workers have declined 1.3%. So all of the productivity, all of the hard work that people have put in has been gobbled up by profit and by CEO and executive salaries. And that's the fundamental problem. Like that's the underpinning problem. And the summit has to deal with that. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a situation where whatever systemic solutions we come up with to skills and migration and access and opportunity and all those other things, if the power dynamics are not changed, then we're going to continue to see these huge CEO salaries, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, $130 million a year payouts to CEOs. Um, and I, I should say the last year's report. I mean, mansions don't buy themselves, Ben. No. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Alan Why Joyce did- manages to buy a $20 million mansion while he's unlawfully sacking nearly 2,000 workers. Yeah. Yeah, I just it just absolutely sickens me. And part of it is how they all justify this to one another. Like, you know, sitting around in a circle going, oh, yes, well, you know, we've got to offer these like stratospheric salaries to management and we have to, you know, reward them with these massive, massive bonuses because otherwise how are we going to attract talent? And I'm like, <laughs> I think you could, like, what, what did we, the, Mr. $9 million a year? I am quite sure there's a person just as competent who's willing to do that job for less than a million a year. I am quite sure that person exists. Yeah. You know, it's not like they're so special and talented, especially given Mr. $9.2 million a year actually had to ask the government to bail him out for $10.5 million. (laughs) I don't think that really, that doesn't say getting $9.2 million worth of value. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? But yeah, but it's the whole, oh, well, the benchmarking says, I mean, we've got to be competitive. We've got to be this. Like people just lie to themselves. Yeah. Well, look, you know, you got to admit if somebody, if somebody was like, look, you know, if we all agree on this, you know, very simple lie that benchmarking is, you know, totally legitimate way of doing this. And we all agree that we're going to be in the top 10% of the benchmark. Uh, and we just ignore the fact that that will spiral wages continuously. If we just kind of all, you know, without even having to verbally agree to this, and we all end up as millionaires, like that—that's basically what's going on. There's a whole class of people who are making themselves millionaires at the expense of everyday working people. But they're not—they're not even making themselves millionaires in such a way that they're delivering great, what capitalist outcomes? No. They're not, they're not doing that. 
you know, like it's 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 unfathomable. There is a management culture of failing upwards in this country. Yeah, where extremely mediocre people, mediocre managers, mediocre executives who run mediocre business plans and sometimes do not even turn a profit from doing so are rewarding themselves with the kind of wealth that used to be reserved for kings through conquest and for doing so. It is just, it's disgraceful. Yeah. And look, the economic conditions have made it much harder. I was having a conversation with someone earlier in the week where rising interest rates and the the lack of free money is actually going to deal with some of this, is probably going to deal with some of this in a way because things like Afterpay and those buy now, pay later schemes, you're seeing them, huge value come off those because the actual reality is they're not good business plans. They're not being run well. They're not viable businesses um, when you know money actually costs something and you can't just get access to huge amounts of it for free and then on-sell it to people who don't know any better for a, for a fee. Um, so, you know, it's, it is... It is so important that the summit gets this stuff right because if the settings aren't right, there is huge profiteering uh, and it will impact our long-term productivity. Van, I want to move on because we're we're going out late tonight as it is. And I'm having a rage aneurysm. <laughs> but we do need to talk about, speaking of rage aneurysms, COVID, it is continuing to get worse. I think in our last uh, episode, uh, hospitalizations were at 6.4% of total hospital beds. They've jumped up to 7.1. Uh, there are almost 4,500 people in hospital. This may, this number may be higher by the time you listen to this episode. Um, the federal government has now made fourth shots of vaccine available for people over 30. Um, very disappointingly, less than 70% of people have had a third shot. At this stage, so there's still guys. Trust us. Get the third shot. You know how sometimes Ben and I both had reactions to the shot. We both had sore arms. It felt like we had a really hard, unripe pear or apple, like a, yeah. definitely a pear, shoved under our skin, and it was uncomfortable. And can I just say that is literally nothing compared to the pain and suffering we experienced with coronavirus, despite the fact we had three jabs. Like you, you cannot, you cannot mess around with this illness. One of the things that we were told when we were sick by our doctors was that we either had, we didn't have sniffles. There was this whole thing about, oh yes, Omicron, just a sniffle. We, we the, the virus has mutated beyond sniffles. You know, either the the new Omicron variants are much, much stronger or potentially, this is what our doctor said, we had Delta. Remember Delta that killed loads and loads of people? Like it is a really nasty disease. If you go to my TikTok account, which is just Van Batten, you can actually see me getting sicker and sicker and croakier and croakier over the course of my TikTok videos when I was at home with coronavirus, like Ben was, was shaking, Ben was vomiting, Ben had joint pain. I differently had sinusitis, could not breathe, had to lock myself in the bathroom, you know, with, mm. with in a hot bath with a humidifier going just so I would be able to breathe through my nose. We lost our sense of smell. We lost our sense of taste. We had random fevers. We were weak. We're still not entirely recovered. Do not screw around. 
get the third jab, do not risk how bad this can get. Is it, it's currently the single largest killer in Australia, is it not? It is the largest killer in Australia. It is uh, verging on, if it hasn't already become the largest uh, single cause of uh, hospitalizations uh, in terms of communicable diseases. There are 2,000 people in hospital in New South Wales. The Guardian has a figure that it calls recent deaths. That number is 1,428 recent deaths. My understanding is that's over a seven-day period. There's been more than 10,000 deaths uh, in Australia. We're well, well and truly on track to hit ten or 15,000 just this year. There are now 737 aged care centres in Australia that have had an outbreak. Like the really disturbing thing here, Van, I think is that the numbers are getting worse. So 737 aged care outbreaks, that's up by 110 in a week. You know, Britain has seen hospitalizations increase by 30% in a week. Victoria has seen hospitalizations increase by somewhere near 80%. You know, these are big increases and big problems. Now, Victoria, the chief health officer recommended mandating masks in retail, schools, mandating working from home again. The Victorian government has decided not to do that. Um, people are obviously COVID fatigued. You know, we see it all the time on public transport, people not wearing masks or the rest of it. But the strong recommendation from every government at every level now is to wear a mask is to maintain physical distance, is to get that third and that fourth shot as soon as you're eligible because it is absolutely increasingly dangerous. It is increasingly on individuals and households and local communities and workplaces to take responsibility. Um, and quite frankly, you know, I've been really disappointed. And I'm just going to say it, I've been disappointed that Labor at a federal level, is getting rid of the um, paid pandemic leave. It's getting rid of free rats for concession card holders on July 31st. You know, I'd encourage every concession card holder listening to this tonight to to follow Prime Minister Albanese's advice and stock up, get as many of those free rat tests as you can. We're going to need them. They're talking about millions of people being infected over the next four to eight weeks. Um, if you're in Victoria, there is still a sick leave guarantee. So check that out. Get on the Victorian government website. There's a sick pay guarantee where if you're not eligible for sick pay, you can get um, access to it in certain industries. Really encourage people to do that. But doctors are saying, Van, this will be the worst we have had COVID in this country over the next coming few months. Like it's really, it's quite frightening. And I, and I don't want to frighten people. That's not we don't like to do that on this show. But I do want people. To we like warning people, though. Yeah, absolutely. We love a warning. Because the other you thing know, is, just as I would say, see that large bonfire and those petrol drums that are near it. Right now is not the time to go near that bonfire. Don't do it. Absolutely. Like that's that's the kind of that's that's the kind of you know just basic safety message that I think we can provide. Like, I, I seriously, guys, I can't tell you how frustrating coronavirus has been for me. Like, Ben and I are incredibly busy at the moment. Um, you know, we have all of these family demands and the fatigue, the tiredness, our days are shorter. 
tasks are more demanding. It's harder to concentrate. We're aware of like friends of ours who've had it, who've told us of their experience, family members, that the longer you fight it, the sicker you are. But we live in a society where we're obliged to put one foot in front of the other and keep going. And it is just so frustrating to be so tired all the time. And I think, you know, Channel 9 actually had uh, a really good uh, segment on its news broadcast, I think last night, where it talked to three different workers uh, about the the cut to the pandemic leave. One was a casual who, you know, young woman who looks after her teenage sister doesn't have access to to paid leave, doesn't know how, she had to take out loans. Uh, a, a fellow who's used all of his sick leave already, having been sick, who's a council worker, had to take out loans. You know, we there was another woman who had changed jobs recently, hasn't, uh, hasn't accumulated any sick leave yet, had to take out loans. Like that's the sort of thing that we face as a society and the long-term repercussions of individual and household debt are significant. I understand the need to be economically responsible with the Commonwealth budget, but fundamentally the power of the Commonwealth to borrow and the power of the Commonwealth to repay is exponentially higher than households. And for casual workers who are in insecure work, who do not know how they will pay back loans that they have to take out just to pay the rent, when they are doing the right thing by isolating and protecting other people, I think, frankly, is a short-sighted decision because what we are relying on as a community is that people do the right thing. And if we make it easier or better or financially advantageous for people to do the wrong thing, then we can expect that that will happen. I would make it clear, I'm not saying people should do that. If, if, you, are, if you have COVID, if you test positive, please isolate. Please do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you should do. And also, like, it was reassuring to hear Mark Butler, who's the new federal health minister, saying that, you know, the government will take advice, you know, the government will respond to a developing situation, that they will do what is necessary at the time that it's necessary. And it's an opportunity now for people to be vocal and public about what they will and won't support. I think, you know, we had this distortion that went on during the worst of the the pandemic that you had an organised minority and they were an extreme minority of people kicking off against mask mandates and claiming Bill Gates came with, you know, a set of steak knives or whatever in every vaccination and all the crazy conspiracy land stuff that obviously I was immersed in broke my brain permanently. It's an opportunity now for people to express their own democratic voice of the majority and say, we would much rather have mask mandates than get coronavirus. We would much rather go back to standards of, um, you know, public health restrictions than get coronavirus. You know, we haven't been through all of this to just give up and let the virus take us now. I think that's a majority position in this country and it's really important that people express that. We have a government that has committed to listening to us and we should make our democratic voices on this issue heard very loudly. And there is a there is a, an Australian Union's petition on this as well on Megaphone. Again, you can check that out. It's really important. Um, couldn't agree with you more, Van. Uh, the government has committed to listening. That's why, you know, you know me, I'm a member of the Labor Party. I'm not shy about that. I'm a union member. I'm a Labor Party member. Uh, but 
you know, we've got to be clear about what we expect or else how can we expect the government to deliver it for us. Let's move on to some good news because we've had quite a bit of bad news in this episode. Um, I want to, before Ben gets to his good news, I want to flag that the James Webb Space Telescope uh, is now operational, and this is good news for all astronomy nerds. The photos that that, tele- that telescope is sending back to Earth are some of the most beautiful, incredible, inspiring things that you will ever see, and check them out. The internet's full of these incredible pictures, so look up the James Webb Space Telescope. Absolutely. They are wonderful. Uh, the the good news I wanted to share was a sand battery that's being used for heating. So this is keeping in, you know, in line with our environmental good news. There's a town in Finland that is using sand to store heat from renewable energies to provide home heating during winter. You can imagine in Finland, as you know, Van, it gets incredibly cold. Yes, I have spent quite a bit of time in beautiful Finland. I'm a self-admitted Finnophile. It is just one of the most extraordinary places on the earth. And these are uh, this is these are a community and a culture uh, of the Finns where they are resourceful and have had to be because if they didn't know how to handle uh, desperately desperately cold temperatures, it gets to minus thirty in in Finland. They would all be dead. And so the sand thing is it's so finished. It's just such a beautifully finished thing. And a shout out to our good friends uh, Luke. Hilakari and Matt Hilakari, who are the only two Finns I know, uh, and who, as I understand it, I'm not sure they've been to Finland, but they are Finnish descent. Because in Finland, they are using tens of thousands of cubic meters of sand. They're heating it from the generation of electricity with solar panels and wind turbines. Matt Canavan is currently having a total mental breakdown about this idea. They're packed into insulated silos, and the sand can retain the heat up to 500 degrees Celsius, can retain heat for months without losing it. People are used to kind of hydro heating in houses and underfloors and things. Water can really only be stored at up to 100 degrees. Sand can be stored up to 500 degrees. So Finns have a five-month-long winter. Uh, this means that it takes a huge amount of uh, energy to heat their homes and, and keep the society functioning, as you mentioned, but it means this new system that there's 100 kilowatts of heating power and eight megawatts, uh, eight megawatt hours of capacity in the sand. Now, this is obviously incredibly attractive. It costs less than 10 euros per kilowatt hour of capacity. It has very little to no emissions, no hazardous materials, and the running cost of this system is incredibly low. Finnish authorities, according to the BBC, the Finnish authorities are going to scale this up from its current eight megawatt uh, capacity to eight gigawatts of capacity. Now, in a country like Australia, where we have an abundant supply of sand. We've got sand, man. We've got more sand than Tatooine around here. We got, this is, I think this is an exciting opportunity. I think it's great news, obviously for Finland. And, you know, I, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try and say the name of the, 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 the district. I don't know if you can say it, but I'm going to try. Do you want me to try? Uh, you, you can try. Yeah, let's see what we can do. Vatajankoski. The Vatajankoski district uh, in 
Kankanapa? Kankanapa? I love you so much. Yes. <laughs> My apologies to any Finns listening, but great news for them, obviously. And, you know, what seems to be quite a small part of the world has come up with this great idea. And I think it's got huge potential for a country like Australia, where we have so much sand and so much solar power that we could use to heat it up. Uh, it's it's just amazing. And I'd like to remind everybody that the reason why, you know, Finland is a country of around, uh, at, last time I checked, 5 million people. It's only a small country. They speak a language that's not spoken by any other country on the earth, one of the Finno-Ugric languages. They, um, they massively, they have a much bigger technological and scientific footprint than you would imagine for a country of that size. But the Finns decided um, several decades ago that the greatest that they didn't have oil yeah. like Norway. You know, they didn't have all these other bits and pieces. They they have Labradorite and lots of fish, but that's and a few trees, and that's about it. But what they had were brains, and they made their national education policy: don't waste a brain. Yeah. So whereas Australia think you know has developed this conception of itself as sort of like an agricultural quarry. Um, Finland went, we're going to have the best education standards on earth. And if you do that, you do things like work out how to make like extremely low emission (laughs) sand generators. Fantastic. Um, Just looking at the spelling of these words, Ben, it looks like um, Vatajankoski and Kankainpa. There you go. I think would be close. So to our comrades in Finland, well done. We hope to be using that kind of technology here soon. Ben, we uh, we'd be we'd love to hear from any Finnish speakers about who got the <laughs> pronunciation closer, me or Ben. Absolutely. Now, of course, the week on Wednesday is not possible without our supporters. Whether you are just liking, sharing, commenting, or making a one-off contribution on our Buy Me A Coffee page. That's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Uh, or if you are giving us a buck a week, that all helps. But of course, our cadre supporters who support us to the tune of $20 a month and our Extend the Reach supporters who support us to the tune of $10 a month really do make sure that we continue to grow our listener base and have helped us get to over half a million downloads. Yes, we should have led with that, really. We were really <laughs> like, it, it's just amazing. There has been half a million downloads of Ben and I, cute little Labor voting Democratic Socialist, talking about a, you know a left-wing frame on politics and economics. And wow, guys, it turns out a lot of people want to have that conversation. How awesome. So we're going to give a shout out to our cadre supporters as we do every episode and our Extend the Reach supporters as well. All right, I'm going to do the names. Let's do go, the names. let's do it. At Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone. At Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandal Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Herriot, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Carrie Nash 20, Belly 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Marissa Simon, at Cattergal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, and Louise Watson, also known as Red, White, and Blue Lou. And our Extend the Reach supporters van. Stuart Munn, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nye, Erica Pizzuti, 
Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Vicky Hanna, at Knot, love your work, love yours too, baby, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graverse, someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannon, Bill Collis, Maria Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trader, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliane and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Bomegard at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. You guys are legends. You have helped us get to 500,000 downloads. Absolutely. So huge congratulations to all of our supporters, Van, and huge congratulations to you as well. That is... Oh, congratulations <laughs> to you too, Benny. And we just want to say, like, if you don't have the dollars uh, to kick some coins in the cup you can help us by promoting the show to your friends online absolutely and of course we love hearing about people who have joined their union uh, and a shout out again to steve we hear stories from people all the time uh and i if i haven't given you a shout out when you've joined your union do send me an email and i will try and do that uh steve just stuck in my mind because it was the last email i read before we jumped online tonight so steve you've got so many mentions already all right that is the week on Wednesday for this week. Now, hopefully we will do a special, very quick edition on Sunday. Do tune in for that. We might have some interesting news for to share with our loyal, loyal listeners. But until then, I love you, Vanny. I love you too. You're the best. You're the best. Bye. Bye.